Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you this day. We glorify you. And we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Oh, Lord, we do praise you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our Father, we thank you for the complete forgiveness that you offer to us through him. That, Lord, he was punished for our transgressions. And that, Lord, he has made complete atonement for all of our sins and washed us clean. And, Father, we thank you for the great privilege that we have now through that blessing to be made the very temple of the living God. That, Lord, by your Spirit, you might come to live inside of us and dwell within us. And that, Lord, your Spirit is here to comfort us and strengthen us and See us through till the end of our faith, to that glorious day when we shall be united to our Lord Jesus in glory. And Lord, in the meantime, to conform us into his image and to make each one of us like Jesus. Oh God, we pray that you would stir our faith today, that you would strengthen us, and oh Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear which you have said in your word. And Father, we do love you and want to devote ourselves to you. And we pray that you would just strengthen our faith and encourage us to remain true to you, God, to pursue your holiness and to pursue your likeness in our lives. And Father, we just pray that you would be pleased to come and be with us this morning and to teach us Lead us into the truth, and Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. We honor you and we praise you because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Okay, so that brings us um, to our ongoing study of Second Thessalonians, and last week we... Um, we're going through our text and had basically gotten through Second Thessalonians chapter two verse eight, and I wanted to just uh, go ahead and read this section of text again before we start this morning, which uh, I'm going to go ahead and start back in chapter two verse one. And I'm going to read through verse 12. <clears throat> this is a text we are studying this morning. should be verses 8 through 12 and possibly beyond that. But let's look this morning at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you, be, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." 
who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Amen. And so, if you will, is this great section in Pauline's writing that um, discusses the matters of the second coming and the timing of the rapture and the apostasy and the revealing of the Antichrist in the world. Last week, we were looking uh, at the end of verse 4, where in verse 4, Paul says that the Antichrist, who he describes as the man of lawlessness or the, and the son of destruction, he says, will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And so, if you will, he, he names this Antichrist as the man of lawlessness, and then he describes what is the scope and influence of his work or of what he does. And, of course, this starts out with this magnanimous statement that he's going to oppose God himself and that he's going to exalt himself above every so-called God. And we were uh, wondering at the, uh, in amazement at the fact that God would even allow this man to live performing such, such acts. But as we saw through our study and looking at the various passages in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, and specifically here in Second Thessalonians, that this man is actually, by the providence of God, ordained to do these things in order to bring the iniquity of mankind to fruition in this coming, in this gospel age. It will be when man has finally rejected the gospel in a worldwide scale and by their utter rejection of God's free grace that is in Christ, that God will no longer restrain this Antichrist from, from being revealed, but will allow the secret power of lawlessness to run its course and bring the world into this final deception under the deception of this Antichrist who will set up what is called in the Bible the abomination of desolation, which is described in Revelation chapter 13 as a worldwide religious and political system 
in which all the whole world of unbelieving people will be deceived and will follow after this man and commit this great apostasy, which is called the abomination of desolation. Or in another place in Daniel, it's described as the abomination that causes desolation. And so, if you will, that when the whole world has followed this beast in the terminology of Revelation 13 and has gone after him to worship him, that that is going to cause the desolation that will quickly come upon them all. First, the amazing and terrible destruction that the Antichrist will cause in and of himself. And then, of course, the retribution of Christ, which is poured out on him and the rest of the unbelieving world at the second coming, which, of course, is described in our letter here back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. So, uh, Paul, of course, mentions this Antichrist and what he will do there in verse 4. And then he goes on in verses 5 through 12, and he gives a, a, a really kind of a comprehensive description of what things are like in the world at that time and how these things come about and what is the scope of his influence. Um, and, and he's describing this in verses 5 through 12. And he, of course, starts by saying, you know, don't you remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And, and of course, we learned that, you know, this is something that Paul had, had shared with the Thessalonians in just the brief time that he was there, three to four weeks he was there in, in establishing the church in Thessalonica. And yet, even in that short period of time, Paul had been through such a comprehensive view, even of eschatology, that they would learn things about the second coming, the timing of the rapture, the great apostasy of the end time, the, and the, uh, the person of the Antichrist, who he was and what he would do. And uh, so it was remarkable, I think, to see that Paul had actually discussed these things in such detail with them. But of course, upon the writing of this letter of Second Thessalonians, after... Silas and Timothy had made their trip back to Thessalonica to deliver the letter of 1 Thessalonians. They were still confused about some of these details. And so here's Paul laying out this um, scope and influence of this Antichrist, how it relates to the timing of the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church, and how it relates to the end-time deception that takes place under the... uh, work of the Antichrist, okay? And of course, when we read the passages in Daniel and the passages in uh, Jesus' Olivet Discourse and the passages in Revelation 13, we kind of get a flavor for this whole thing because very similar language is used in all those passages to describe what the world will be like at that point in time. But ultimately, what's going to happen is the whole world of unbelieving people is going to be led astray by this Antichrist. And in the language of Revelation 13, the whole world is going to worship this man. And if you will, they are going to follow his system of idolatry, worship the image that is set up in his honor, and take the mark of his name, which, by which no one in the world will be able to buy, sell, or trade during that time. And of course, Revelation 13 describes that time of a tremendous war 
against the saints of God, and a time when they must put on patient endurance, and a time when there will be tremendous um, destruction that takes place in the world, as described also by Daniel and by Jesus. And so, if you will, uh, Paul is going on through this section of text, verses uh, 5 through 12, and he's discussing what is the scope and influence of Antichrist. Last week, we got through our notes down to the bottom of page 97, where Paul was talking about the restrainer, and there in the notes, you can read about the restrainer. We talked about that at length last week. And... um, Nevertheless, the idea is that there is this restrainer who Paul identifies as a male personage. And even though he doesn't identify the exact person of that, we know that it's either God himself or some agent appointed by God to restrain the Antichrist and to restrain the secret power of lawlessness until the proper time, Paul says. And then at that time, the proper time, According to God's sovereignty and according to the providence of God, the, restrainer, the restraining influence is going to be lifted, and then lawlessness is going to run its course, and the deception of Antichrist is going to come upon the whole world. Furthermore, God is going to make sure that that's exactly what happens. And, of course, as I had told you in the past, the sovereignty of God during this point in time in history is clearly in view in this text in several places. Um, But nevertheless, this idea about this power of lawlessness and the Antichrist being restrained is only until the appointed time. And I had pointed out at the end of the lesson last week, Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus was speaking of this very thing. And he said that uh, during this time, uh, uh, just before his coming, that we would be handed over and hated by all nations and handed over and persecuted and put to death because of his name. And that at that time, many people would turn away from the faith. And because of the love of, of uh, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most would grow cold. And then he makes this statement, in verse 14, that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. And so Jesus talks about that time of the end being a time of great revelation of the gospel to all the nations of the world. And he says, when the gospel has been given as a testimony to all the nations, then the end will come. The very next statement that Jesus makes in verse 15 is, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So as he's describing this time when the gospel will go out to all the nations, right? Then he points out that it's going to be at this time when the abomination of desolation takes place. He goes on to describe that in verse 21 and 22 as a time of great tribulation such has been uh, unequaled from the beginning of nations until that time, nor ever shall be, right? Which we know that's a quote from Daniel chapter 12, where at the end of chapter 11 in Daniel, he's discussing the abomination of desolation and says the same thing, that at that time, right, Michael will arise and there will be a time of distress unequaled from the beginning of nations, Daniel says, until that time. The very same thing Jesus is saying. 
that, that characterizes this time period during the rise of the Antichrist to power. Okay? And so, if you will, these are the things that are in view in Paul's text. And he's talking about this Antichrist being restrained until the proper time. So I pick up on the notes here at the bottom of page 97. When this restrainer is removed and the lawless one is revealed and accomplishes his brief but powerfully deceptive attack against the truth of the Christian faith, Jesus will return and his glorious coming and, and will destroy this evil worker, as Paul states, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And so as I was telling you before, that uh, the Antichrist, the scope of what he seeks to do is to deceive people in the world. And, of course, I was pointing out that how will you deceive people in the world concerning what? And, of course, the answer is concerning the truth of the Christian gospel, concerning the truth that Jesus is the one who saves from sin and from death. And that when, when Paul uses the language of the truth... In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's talking about the truth of the Christian gospel that saves. Because that's been his very point. Um, that uh, this uh, deceiver is going to come and deceive concerning the truth that saves. You see, they, they, um, they perish because they refuse the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so he has in view this scope of the truth that saves. Are you with me? Which, of course, is Paul's gospel, which he's talked about throughout both letters, First and Second Thessalonians. But he says that when this restrainer is removed, um, that um, he is going to then, of course, do his evil work. And his evil work is the deception of wickedness that he carries out upon the people of the earth. And uh, if you will... Back in verses 6 and 7, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he would be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Verse 8, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And of course, we realize that Antichrist is given power by God for a short period of time. Right? How long is that period of time? Three and a half years or 42 months, right? Or in Daniel's language, a time times and half a time, right? Or in days, 1260 days, right? And so if you will, uh, we see, and as I discussed last week, that this is the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, which, which we know from Daniel 9.27 that the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel is marked by the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel 9.27 Therefore, there is a three and a half year period once that Antichrist is revealed by that abomination of desolation that he's given power for that 42 months to do his evil work and his deception. Which ultimately is to cause the people of the world to worship him as he exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship by, by creating an image 
and commanding everyone in the world to worship that image or be killed. Revelation chapter 13, verses 15 through 17. Okay? And when people reject the gospel ultimately, which has been preached as a testimony to all the nations, and God gives them over because they refuse to love the truth, instead take pleasure in wickedness, Paul says, right? God gives them over. Then this man appears. They come to worship this man, and that causes the desolation of God's judgment upon the earth. When Christ returns in flaming fire with his mighty angels, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. So then, <clears throat> Paul mentions then that when this restrainer is removed, that uh, this lawless one will be revealed, and then he describes him also as the one whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And as I was pointing out here in, at the top of page 98, uh, this is also pictured in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, where there in verses uh, 13 and following is seen the second coming of Christ. There is this vision that John sees of the second coming of Christ where Jesus appears on a white horse and there is a sword protruding from his mouth, which is the word of God. And it is uh, with this word that he smites his enemies. And here in verse uh, 20 uh, is described how Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth this Antichrist. There it says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And of course, at that, they will never be heard from or seen again. It is interesting to note the phrase, the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. This amazing language describes the doom of the Antichrist, which is wrought personally by the very word of God, who is Jesus himself, and by the breath of his mouth, and also by the appearance of his coming. Paul says that Jesus will slay him two ways, by the breath of his mouth and by the appearance of his coming. Very interesting language. The word appearance here is in the Greek, epiphaneia, and translated elsewhere as glory, splendor, brightness, or radiance. So if you read in another translation, it may say, by the radiance of his coming, or by the brightness of his coming. The idea is that the light will be so bright that it will slay the darkness. Or if you will, it will bring to an end his work. Okay, And, and really the language has this idea that instead of, uh, when, when he's talking about bring to an end, the, the, the idea in the Greek there is to ruin his influence. It's not so much to annihilate him, although he will be uh, destroyed utterly, right? Not annihilated, but destroyed utterly in the lake of fire. But also, the wicked influence that he has brought upon the world is going to be brought to an end by the brightness of the truth himself appearing in the sky. 
or by the radiance or the glory of the coming of Christ. Listen, when Christ appears in the heavens with his mighty angels and flaming fire, listen, he is going to bring to pass his influence on the world. And he is going to completely arrest evil. And he is going to bring to pass the age of peace under his kingship here in the world. We call it the millennial kingdom. Amen? Well, the picture here is that the very brightness of the glory of the returning Christ will render this mere man utterly powerless and he will be personally and radically avenged and destroyed by Jesus the King. Listen, when Jesus shows up, he's going to destroy the Antichrist. And he is going, he's one of the first rulers of the earth, kings of the earth, that he destroys when he also binds Satan and then therefore establishes his kingdom upon the earth. This brings us to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul is still describing what it's like during that time and who this man is and what he does. He says, that is the one who is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth to so be saved. Here Paul writes, and he says, that is, he's describing the Antichrist, who Jesus is going to slay with the breath of his mouth. He says, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. In other words, this man comes and he does Satan's work. And he does Satan's will. And uh, he does that with all power and signs and false wonders. And Paul describes it with all the deception of wickedness. Paul further identifies the Antichrist by speaking about the scope of his influence and the nature of it. He is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Jesus characterized Satan as a thief a liar and a murderer and a destroyer. This surely is an apt description of the work of the Antichrist, whom Paul calls the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. This we should expect to see in full array, the most deceptive, murderous, destroying liar and thief that ever lived upon the face of the earth. That's who the man of lawlessness is. This activity of Satan, Paul describes as coming with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness. Note well that Antichrist will be a powerful being who will do amazingly deceptive signs and false wonders and also seek to kill and destroy many mighty men and holy people, Daniel 8, 24. In Revelation 13, these signs are attributed to the false prophet, the Antichrist's right-hand man. So if you understand the text of Revelation 13, this beast uh, who is described there is actually the Antichrist himself, and he has this other evil, if you will, false prophet that works with him. And these two are in view there, but in chapter 13, verses 13 and following, it's describing uh, how this false prophet works and what he does. And it says there in verse 13, and he performs great signs, just like Paul said would happen, just like Jesus said would happen in the Olivet Discourse. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. 
And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. That, of course, is the Antichrist. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so if you will, that text there is strikingly similar to what Paul is saying here in 2 Thessalonians, that he's going to come with great signs and wonders and that those signs actually deceive the non-elect of the world and that they uh, <clears throat> actually are swallowed up in this deception of Antichrist. Of course, there in, in verse 8, uh, John had written in Revelation 13, verse 8, that the whole world would worship and follow after the beast. Verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And so we know that the scope of his deception is going to be successful on all the people of the world, except for the elect of God. Jesus also warned that during the Great Tribulation that Antichrist would seek to deceive even the very elect people of God by many signs and wonders. In Mark 13, verse 21 and following, it reads like this, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. But take hold, but take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. And as I pointed out to you so many times, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is warning the church about this deception that's going to come. And he's saying this man's going to come to deceive even the very elect if it were possible. But as we have discussed, it's not possible, is it? Because of the keeping influence of the Spirit of God in our life. Amen. We are kept by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed. 1 Peter 1.5. Amen. And others. So the elect won't be deceived. But listen. For all of those who take pleasure in wickedness. Who refuse to believe the truth. And refuse to receive the love of the truth. They are going to be deceived by the Antichrist. They're going to take the mark of the beast. And they're going to be doomed to destruction with him. Some argue that these signs are not real but an illusion because Paul describes them as signs and false wonders. But the Greek is not conclusive on this matter. There's a big dispute about that idea of false wonders. And, and some say the actual wonders are false. And others say, no, it's actually the influence of the signs and wonders that create this false deception. Nevertheless, we're not entering into that big argument. The idea is rather clear. Um, what is surely true is that the signs and false wonders do achieve the purpose of deception as they successfully lead the whole world astray to believe what is false, verse 11, 
except for God's elect, verses 13 and 14, and the nature of these signs and false wonders is the deception of wickedness. Paul says that these uh, signs and false wonders come with all the deception of wickedness. Okay? If you will, it is a vile and wicked thing that this Antichrist seeks to cause the people of the earth to engage in. That is, that they would actually worship this image. That they would actually do this abomination that causes desolation upon the world. This is where the world is headed. It is headed to a place where it will ultimately receive the very Antichrist himself as he exalts and opposes himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And they actually succumb to his deception. So much so that the scripture describes it that all who are in the world will worship this beast. He describes these people then um, that who are deceived by this deception of wickedness as those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. See here, who are the pitiful subjects of this deception? It is those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. These are identified as those who perish as opposed to those who receive the love of the truth and are saved. Do you understand? There's a contrast here. The contrast is in this verse, which describes those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved with those who are in verse 13 and 14 who have been chosen of God for salvation from the beginning through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through faith in the truth. You understand? There's a contrast going on here between verse uh, uh, 9 and, I'm sorry, what verse is that? Verse um, 10 and verse 13. The contrast is those who perish because they refuse the love of the truth and those who've been chosen from the beginning for salvation through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and faith in the truth. Okay? Contrast is between those who perish and those who are saved. Amen? These... I'm sorry, let's see here. And so is the destiny of all who reject the truth of the gospel. They perish in a hopeless and Christless eternity, verse chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, which they have chosen of their own accord, having spurned the free grace of God and salvation which is freely offered to all who will believe. You see, they perish because, Paul says. Why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Isn't it interesting how he describes that faith as a love of the truth? It's in the affections of man that saving faith is wrought. Amen? The nature of the deception in verse 9 through 12 is clearly an an opposition to the Christian faith as the words, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, indicates a rejection of the salvation of God that is offered by receiving the love of the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ by faith alone, which is the agency of being saved. You understand what I'm saying? 
What I'm saying here is that because of this language, we know that this deceiving opposition that Antichrist does is concerning the gospel of salvation, which is in Christ. Because it's the gospel that saves. Are you with me? And so that we know that the focus and the attack of his, his deception is against the person and the work of Christ. Are you with me? I might mention as opposed to some Jewish temple on a hill somewhere where there's blood sacrifices being offered for the forgiveness of sins. Are you with me? The, folk, the focus of the deception of the Antichrist is the Christian gospel. That's how you deceive people. Okay? It's not some set of blood sacrifices that are happening under some Jewish system of religion. Are you with me? Because the Jewish system of religion does not save people. The Antichrist is not going to be concerned with deceiving people concerning what the Jewish system did by offering the blood of goats and bulls. Are you with me? The reason I bring this up is because of the former discussion we had about the temple and the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple of God and the relevance to the rebuilding of a Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Okay? You might want to go back and listen to that and read through the notes. We talked about that at great length. Going on then, further, the deception brings clarification that the apostasy of verse two, chapter 2, verse 3 is as discussed. A departure from the truth of the gospel in accepting the abomination of desolation as outlined in Revelation 13, 12 through 17. This identifies the central attack of the Antichrist against the saints of Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 through 27, and Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 through 10, as an attempt to silence the voice of the Christian faith or gospel being preached in the world so that people can be saved. This is what the Antichrist is going to oppose. He's going to oppose the gospel. Namely, he's going to try to stop the mouths of those who preach the gospel. This is what Daniel means when he says he will focus his attention and destroy the mighty men and the holy people. Those who Daniel describes in chapter 11 as those who know their God, who will do mighty exploits in this day and time. Okay, you see, his focus is against the gospel and those who preach it. And this is what is in view when this language is being used that the saints are being overpowered and overcome. Uh, Let's see here. He deceives concerning the truth about being saved. It is this silencing of the mouth of the Christians that is what is in view when Daniel and John state that the saints will be overcome, overpowered, and worn down. This is, of course, to fulfill God's purpose of allowing the sin of mankind and their rejection of the gospel to run its full course and bring iniquity to its fruition, resulting in the vengeance of God. Here's what I'm saying. The gospel of this kingdom will be preached as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. When? When they have finally rejected it. When it has come as a testimony to every nation on the face of the earth and they have rejected that gospel, listen, there's no hope left for them. 
and then the restraining influence will be lifted. The Antichrist will do his thing. The whole world will be swept away in his deception. And this will bring the desolation of Christ's retribution, which will come upon the unbelieving world. But my point that the Antichrist is going to focus his attack, his work against the Christian gospel is seen in these, this language of Daniel 7 and in Revelation 13, where he is waging war against the saints. Listen to what the scripture says, Daniel 7, 21 and following. I kept looking and that horn, that is the Antichrist, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. You see what Daniel's saying? That this Antichrist is waging war against the saints and overpowering them until when? Until the Ancient of Days came. What is that? The second coming of Christ. When he comes to deliver his people and cut short the tribulation that's taking place in the world because it's cut short for the sake of the elect. And he comes to cut that time short. Listen, Daniel describes that as the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom because when Jesus comes again and he raptures the church, right? Of course, his first order of business is to destroy the evil that's in the world, starting with the Antichrist but then eventually to descend all the way to the earth and establish his kingdom, in his throne in Jerusalem itself, where he's going to rule and reign with his people for a thousand years. Right? Before the final rebellion. Of course, we've been through that many times. But listen to this language of Daniel as he's describing what takes place with this Antichrist. Verse 25. And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. So again, Daniel is saying he's going to try to wear down these saints. And, you know, again, as I was saying last week, how do you wear down the saints? How do you overcome the saints? Well, you can't steal their salvation from them. Amen? I mean, you can beat them, you can whip them, you can even cut off their head, but you can't take away the glory. As a matter of fact, all you do is usher them into glory. Amen? So how do you wear down the saints? How do you overcome the saints, right? And, and here's my point. His attack is against the gospel, which you're preaching with your mouth. It's a message that goes out by word. Amen? And so he's going to seek to silence us. And he's going to do it with all kinds of deception. He's going to turn the whole world against the church who's preaching the gospel as a witness to all the nations. Are you with me? It's going to be a terrible time, okay? But it's a necessary thing that must come to pass in order for the iniquity of mankind to reach its fullness. And when that fullness comes to pass, then the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels. And he's going to put an end to all of it. Revelation 13 
Verses 7 and 8 describes this this way. And it was given to him, that is the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Hence, see here more clear evidence of the church's presence in the great tribulation as they are yet preaching the gospel and this love of the truth that they proclaim becomes the very object of the Antichrist deception as he seeks to lead people astray concerning this truth and they finally reject it by believing his lies and committing the ultimate apostasy by worshiping his image and receiving the mark of the beast. Revelation thirteen fifteen through 17. The result of mankind's rejection of the gospel on this worldwide scale is that they perish because they did not receive the love of the truth to so be saved. Which is why we weep for those who won't believe. Which is evidenced by their lack of repentance from sin. Amen? How do we know they won't believe? Because they take pleasure in wickedness and continue on in their sin. Of which we're pleading with them. Turn, turn, lest ye be destroyed. Right? That brings us to verse 11 and 12. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Notice here how God's sovereignty in bringing this age to its fulfillment is clearly in view in Paul's mind as he ascribes the deluding influence of Antichrist's deception to God himself. The picture is much like Romans 1, 24-32 where God gives men over to a depraved mind and to their own sinful persistence, allowing their wickedness to run its course and bring their iniquities to fruition, resulting in his clear indictment as they are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Of course, that's Romans 2.5. Because mankind has ultimately rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, and did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, it is for this reason that God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. See here, when people's rejection of the gospel is final and complete on a worldwide scale, that God will ultimately act in removing the restrainer and allowing the deception of wickedness, verse 10, to run its full course by sending a deluding influence which causes them to believe what is false and fall prey to Antichrist's dooming, idolatrous abomination of desolation. Of course, there's a list of scriptures there. We are not told specifically what, specifically here, what this deluding influence is, except that we know it comes directly from God's command. As Paul states, God will send upon them a deluding influence. See here God's patience in waiting until there has been a complete rejection of his gospel 
and the certainty of his judgment for rejecting the free grace of his salvation in Christ, which is offered to all, to whoever believes in him. John 3.16. Listen, God is going to preach the gospel to all the nations of the earth as a testimony. The word of the gospel is going out even as we speak to all the nations. The church is zealously deployed in the nations of the world to preach the gospel. Christians are giving their life daily to go into places that is utterly hostile to the gospel to go and to preach the gospel. The gospel is going out in this age even as we watch with our own two eyes. It should be noted here that, the, that God himself does not delude people, but there is an evil agent of this delusion sent by God to accomplish this. God never carries out evil with his own hand, but, always, but evil always accomplishes his ultimate purpose for it, and he always has free moral agents who are willing to commit evil to bring his purpose to fulfillment. Do you understand? It says God will send a deluding influence. It doesn't say that God will be a deluding influence himself. Do you understand? The scripture never ascribes evil to God. Never, ever once. It talks about him using evil in his providence to accomplish his own ends and purposes. But it never, ever ascribes evil to God himself. Okay? Uh, that is the carrying out of evil himself. Leon Morris has an insightful comment here. He says, In Hebrew thought, the powers of evil have no independent existence, but always depend on God. He makes the wrath of man to praise him, Psalm 76.10. And he works his purposes out even in the evil that people or Satan do. In particular, God uses the evil consequences of sin in his punishment of the sinner. These consequences are not simply the result of impersonal process. Paul can say that God gave people up to the consequences of their sin, Romans 1, 24 and following. God's hand is in the process whereby the sinner receives the fitting recompense of sin. But we should not miss the point that even in dealing with disobedience, God's purpose is mercy, Romans eleven thirty two which says God has bound all men over to disobedience or to sin that he may have mercy on them all. If you will, some people look at this and they say, see, God does evil. But that's not what the text says. What it says is God is providentially ruling over his world, even the evil that takes place in it. Amen? Verse 12, in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. <clears throat> Paul says, in order that they may all be judged. See here that the deluding influence of verse 11 has a distinct purpose in God bringing his certain judgment on those who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Because people have ultimately rejected the gospel and did not believe the truth, but rather than repent of their sins as the gospel commands, they took pleasure in wickedness and brought God's certain judgment upon themselves, even as the gospel warned. 
Consider Paul's language here in light of Jesus' statement in John chapter 3. And there Jesus says, verse 19, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You see, what Paul is is saying here is that because they um, did not believe the truth, but instead took pleasure in wickedness, because of that, God sends a deluding influence so that they'll be deceived. Listen, they don't love the truth. They love their sin. So is every person who has not been born again. And this is what characterizes their life. Their love for sin is what characterizes their life. Their pleasure in wickedness is what ultimately brings the judgment of God to bear upon them. And so it is on this worldwide scale that Paul describes what happens under the Antichrist is that even though the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth, all of the people of the world have rejected that testimony of the gospel. And only elect, only the elect have been saved. And for those who are left, there's nothing left. There's nothing left to do. They cannot be saved. If they won't believe the gospel, listen. They're fueled for the wrath of God. That's all you can do with a sinner who rejects the gospel utterly. Are you with me? And this every person does when he rejects the gospel. He rejects the only way he can be saved from death, which is eternal separation from God. So in a worldwide sense and in a worldwide scale, when the whole world won't receive the gospel, right? We're done. The fullness of the times is over. Listen, it's time for a new age. And Jesus is going to appear and he's going to bring that new age. But three and a half years prior to that, it's going to happen through this utter deception that takes place through this Antichrist and this system of religious and economic uh, scope that he implements, whereby it is confirmed. Here's how it's confirmed in this worldwide scale. You take the mark of the beast on your right hand or on your forehead. And you worship this image that he erected in honor of the Antichrist who has opposed and exalted himself above every so-called God and displayed himself as God in the very temple of God. And so people in the world are going to commit this act of idolatry. The Bible calls it the abomination of desolation. And when they have done that and the gospel has gone out as a testimony to all the nations then the end will come. That's what's being described here by Paul in great detail. The contrast between those who believe the truth and those who reject it is always clearly seen by the repentance that comes from true saving faith. People who are truly born again and saved do not take pleasure in wickedness, but rather repent of wickedness and seek to flee from it. 
This is not to say that true Christians never sin, but rather that the general pattern and habit of their life is to flee from and turn away from wickedness and sin. So then, thus ends this great section, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 2, verse 12, of the Pauline corpus dealing with the second coming, the timing of the rapture, and the deceptive events of the great tribulation under the influence of that evil worker, the Antichrist. The clarity of Paul's thought and the striking parallels to Jesus' Olivet Discourse enlightens us like the noonday sun. Let us heed well the warning of both Jesus and Paul when they tell us, see to it that no one misleads you, and like Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying what Jesus and Paul have said about these events and these things of the end times is so clear. And the purpose of the clarity of their teaching is so that we won't be deceived. That family, we shouldn't be deceived concerning these things about the second coming, the rapture of the church, and the Antichrist. Are you with me? Let us take heed their warning. And let us take heed to the things that have been said and written. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Father, all Lord, we see these unbelievably awesome things that are coming upon the world. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us clear insight to understand what you have described here. And Lord, help us to bring application of these things to our life. Help us to see our ministry of reconciliation that we have in the world, that we are your witnesses to give testimony of your gospel to the nations. Oh Lord, let us arise and, 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 and be the royal priests that you have called us to be in declaring forth your praises and telling people of the great things that you have done in our hearts and in our lives. Oh God, use us to glorify your name. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged and reassured to see that you're sovereignly and providentially ruling over all of these things. And that, Lord, you have in mind for us your salvation. That, Lord, you're causing all things to work together for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. And that, Lord, ultimately what you have for us is that we might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great hope that we have in him. And we thank you for the complete atonement and forgiveness of sins that he has provided for us through his cross. To his honor we pray. Amen. Amen.